I've got a question for you right off the top. Do you have any memories from the back seat? When you were kids, a bunch of sickos. Lord have mercy. I wrote that. I was like, I'm going to get some strange looks from some twisted people. Lord. Right? I was a kid before minivans. Okay, minivans were invented when I was like, I don't know, 11 or something like that. Remember the first time my dad rented one? We were like, what is this very strange and ugly looking vehicle? Now we all drive them. It's terrible. I grew up with my parents driving a very cool Volkswagen Passat through the nation of Israel. And of course, it was a station wagon, but just had three seats. And there were three kids in my family. So we spent our entire life packed in that back seat. We moved back to Canada because dad had raised us in small, sporty cars. He got a Civic Si. The little hatchback, yes, a family of five used to roll in that thing to church and back every Sunday and all throughout the city of Mississauga. I was always cramped. The back seat is always a terrible place to be as a kid. It's cramped. If you happen to have a brother like mine, it's stinky. You know, if somebody's eating something, you'll eventually be eating it as well. There's nothing really good about the back seat except for one thing. Somebody was always taking you somewhere. That was kind of cool about being in the back seat. Somebody was always taking you somewhere. And for today's purposes, that somebody is Jesus And that somewhere is to victory. Let me show you from the text. This is 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him." I'm warning you, I may end up preaching like my forefathers a little bit today. And we all know what that means. I've divided this passage today into eight sections for you. There were eight big ideas that jumped out at me right away as I worked my way through it. And those eight are these. Number one, Jesus identified with you, so now you can identify with him. And the story about him is really true, so you can really build your life on it. And he's so stoked about that story that he actually took a victory lap through hell to preach about it. By the way, while we're preaching about God, let's preach and remember his patience. And also let us remember that salvation, both in its outer manifestation and in the inner work it is based upon, relies on and is rooted in the resurrection and... Jesus rose again to go somewhere, back to his rightful place, and to do something, which was to sit down at the Father's right hand to rule and reign, or in other words, continue his victory lap, and I will leave point number eight for the conclusion. Meanwhile, let's find all this in the text. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, (laughs) That he might bring us to God. We need to begin with Jesus. This is a church after all. 
I am a preacher, you are God's people, for Christ. For Christ. It's beautiful. Anytime a gospel writer begins with Jesus, we know he's beginning in the right place for Christ. Begin with Jesus. Everything you do in life should be because of what Christ has done. Everything that you do. Think about everything that you do in the course of an average week. Everything that you do should be done because of what Christ has done for you. And this, of course, begs the question, what is it that he's done exactly? Well, here's what Jesus has done for you. He's identified with your sufferings. And not just that, he has suffered and died in your place for your sins. Oftentimes, when speaking about the death of Christ, we ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? For that, we have to dig a little bit into the scriptures. Here are some of the reasons Jesus Christ had to die. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin in any form, but must punish it. God made us to be his friends forever. We fell into sin and death as a result of our parents' sin in the Garden of Eden. We now have a problem, a holy God, with these creatures made in his image and likeness, meant to be his friends forever, who are now sinners. And his holiness demands that sin must be punished, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Further, in the book of Romans, in chapter 6, verse 26, we know the following. We read it. The wages of sin is death. Sin comes with a price. You know this, right? Practically in your own life, when you sin against somebody, something dies in that relationship. If anyone has ever sinned grievously against you, you know that that relationship, even when forgiveness enters in, is never quite the same because something dies when sin enters in because the wages of sin is death. Ultimately, of course, sin, unrepented of, leads to everlasting death, leads to separation from a holy God forever, which is a fate worse than death. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But of course, I'm a gospel preacher, so I would be remiss if I didn't add the following. But while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. That's in Romans 5, verse 8. You could put that into today's text. That's how closely it fits. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, So he entered into space-time history. God became a man. And as he hung upon the cross, God the Father placed upon God the Son's Son the iniquity of us all. And Jesus Christ suffered and died in your place for your sin. Peter here emphasizes that he died once for sins so that his original hearers would go, oh, he's dealt with it once and for all. This is why the gospel is good news. Jesus has dealt not just with my sin problem. He has dealt with your sin problem. He has dealt with our sin problem because Jesus Christ also suffered once for sins in the great exchange, the righteous for the unrighteous. C.S. Lewis coined that term, the great exchange. Put in grade nine vernacular, Jesus' goodness at the cross comes to you and your badness as he hangs there goes to him. For all time this is true. He is the righteous dying once for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. His death had a destination built into it. He died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Simply put, Jesus has brought you home. 
God himself entered into the human story in Christ. He is deeply identified with its pain and suffering, and he has made a whole new way for us to be human through his incarnation, his sinless life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. This leads us all the way back to point number one. Jesus has identified with you, so now you can identify with him. Practically, what does this mean? This means you should go out and live your week this week as if it's tattooed on your soul. I'm a Jesus person now. Because he has identified with you, you can, should, and must identify with him. I'm a Jesus person now. It's important to say that this story that you are identifying so deeply with is not some kind of fairy tale. Verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What's Peter saying here? He's saying this Jesus that I'm talking about, he really died and he really rose again being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Of course, you may be thinking, well, how do we know? How do we know that Jesus really died? How do we know that he really was raised to life? Well, let's remember who's writing this here. Peter, who in Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62, is with Jesus at his arrest. And during that sequence, as they begin to beat Jesus and spit upon him just prior to bringing him to trial. Peter, who is there, sees it all happening, denies any association with Jesus three times. Peter, who in Luke 23, 49, is with the crowd of all of Jesus' acquaintances, friends, and followers as they watch him die. Peter, who in Luke 24, 12, runs to the empty tomb to see for himself that Jesus has risen. Peter, who in Mark 16, verse 14, is at dinner with the other 10 remaining disciples when Jesus shows up, rebukes their unbelief, and gives them the great commission. Peter, who in John 21 is fishing after Jesus' resurrection back home on the Sea of Galilee when suddenly Jesus shows up. And Peter realizes it's Jesus, and he's so excited that he jumps out of the boat, swims to shore, The rest of the guys bring the boat in. They've had this incredible catch because Jesus anointed them to prosper in their work. The fish comes in. Peter runs into the water, picks up all the fish, lugs it into shore, and makes Jesus breakfast. Peter, who in Acts chapter 2, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches the first sermon of the new church. And 3,000 people give their hearts to Jesus. The church grows from 120 to 3,000 in one day. Peter, who in Acts chapter 10 has a vision from God leading him to realize that the gospel is for everybody, not just for the Jews. Which leads him to say the following in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 48. Listen to this sequence in its entirety. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly... I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went out doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. These are the words of Peter. But God raised him on the third day and made him 
him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded to us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and of the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain with them for some days. This is, my friends, an eyewitness telling you point number two the story about Jesus is really true so you can really build your life on it so go out into your week based on this eyewitness account and find one thing you can do to build your life on Jesus and his story of triumph what's one thing you could do and if I seem excited it's because the text is exciting I'm not the only one who was excited And if you ever thought preachers shouldn't be excited, you're about to get corrected from the scriptures once and for all. This story is so exciting that even Jesus got excited about it. After the Holy Spirit woke him up Easter Sunday morning, but he was made alive in the spirit in the words of verse 18. This is a beautiful scene, by the way. Did you know that it was the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead? Sometimes we think that Jesus had enough power in and of himself to raise himself from the dead. It was the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead that first Easter Sunday morning. Who rolled the stone away? The Holy Ghost rolled the stone away. Walked into that tomb. Saw the Logos still slumbering. You know the Holy Spirit said to the Logos? Wakey, wakey, Logos. We got work to do. If you don't know the Logos, if you're new to church, the Logos is the original Greek word for the name for the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, the Logos, the ever-living, eternal Word of God. Friends, the Holy Ghost walked into the tomb and woke the Logos up. And the Logos jumps up and he goes, Woo! Let's go! And the Holy Ghost says, Okay, where do you want to go? And the Logos says, I want to go to hell. And the Holy Ghost says, really? And the Logos says, oh, yes, I do. And the Holy Spirit says, why? And the Logos says, because I feel the urge in me to preach this morning. And so the Logos descended unto hell by the power of the Holy Spirit and did what? Preached to the spirits, verse 19, in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Most interpreters that I read, and I tend to agree with this you know, kind of classical interpretation, believes that these spirits in prison are the Nephilim, the fallen angels, pre-Genesis 6, who were lying with the daughters of men, giving birth to the race of giants who plagued God's people throughout their history. And God was angry about this. And these spirits were sent into prison until the day of judgment would come. And little did they know that the day of judgment would be when the Logos descended unto hell to say, it is finished. I have won. I have the keys. 
Look at my awesomeness. Get ready for what's about to happen. Y'all didn't see this coming. Happy Easter, baby. Never forget the fact that Jesus is a preacher. This is very sobering for me. This is why I got to preach good for the remainder of the days of my life because guaranteed when I get to heaven, there's no more work for me. Because you got the preacher of all preachers seated on the throne at the Father's right hand. And I'm pretty sure that any time he wants to throw down, he's going to get up and throw down just fine. (laughs) Point number three. Excuse my excitement, but Jesus was so excited about what's happened that he goes to preach about it to the fallen angels. Friends, he takes a victory lap. This is extravagant. This is a waste of time. This is not efficiency at its best. He's taking a victory lap. It's a point for you. You got something to celebrate this week? Celebrate it in Jesus' name. Something good happened to you this week? Woo! Celebrate like it's Easter. Anybody got something good? This is black church. They stop the service right now. Everyone gets up to testify. Band comes up. Starts this. Everybody gets up. Shouts about how good God's been to them. If God's been good to you, celebrate. And since I'm preaching this morning, let's preach about God's patience, point number four. When God's patience waited. I love it. Patience here is personified. Huh? Like God's patience is a person and it's waiting in the days of Noah for the ark to be finished. It's chilling. It's waiting. These fallen angels are up to no good. And you'd think that the world had gone amok, that God wasn't in control. But friend, I'm here to remind you this morning that he's just waiting. He's in no rush. Because all the power, authority, dominion, rule, reign, glory is his. Nobody can touch it. He's got nothing to worry about. He's relaxed. He's waiting. God's patience is waiting. God waits. Why does God wait? Romans 11.25 gives us a clue. He's waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. That's a beautiful picture. Most of you in this room are Gentiles. God's waiting for you to come in. He's waiting for your families to come in. He's waiting for your friends to come in. That's why God waits. God also waits, according to 2 Peter 3.9, because it's his will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Maybe today is your day to stop testing God's patience and come to repentance. As I said it, you had something hit your heart just now. You know it's you. If that's you today, I'm going to give you an opportunity at the end of the service to close that loop. To say, Jesus, today I have believed your story. Today I give my life to you. Today I hail you as king. Today I become your servant. Please forgive me of my sins. Make me your own. Change me from the inside out. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I'm yours. Maybe today is your day to stop testing God's patience. And look, that salvation that some of you just walked into, point number five, 
in both its outer manifestation and in its inner work, is based on, relies upon, and is rooted in, in its entirety, the resurrection. Okay, salvation, both what you can see of it, in terms of someone's behavior, the way in which salvation transforms someone's life, and the inner work that no one can see, that's what drives the outer work, Salvation, outwardly, inwardly, it's rooted in, based upon, relies on the resurrection, period. This is why Peter says what he says in verse 21 when speaking of baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, referring to Noah's flood, now saves you. Then he qualifies it, because you'd think, oh, baptism saves me, great. Let's run a bunch of ignorant peasants through a river, tell them they're Christians now. Church fell into error in the Middle Ages, man. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, baptism saves you not just by, you know, ceremonially washing you, but because baptism is an outer sign of an inner work where you are appealing to God for a good conscience. And where God, because of his goodness and his grace, rushes in to meet you in the waters of baptism. Jumps onto your public declaration. And fans into flame the inner work that then drives all the outer manifestation that shows up for the rest of your life. As you follow Jesus, learning what it means to love, serve, follow, obey, and enjoy him all the days of your life. This all depends on the resurrection. Why? Because the resurrection is the ultimate evidence of God's power at work. And it's that power, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, in the words of Romans 8, dwells in you. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, here at church, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Did you hear it? The same spirit that woke the Logos Easter Sunday morning is the same spirit that dwells in you. The power of God alive and at work in you, giving you power to live. So many Christians live disempowered lives because they're disconnected from the Holy Spirit. Why do the scriptures teach us to be being filled with the Holy Spirit? Because we leak. To be filled at conversion is not enough. Right? Yes, we are all filled at conversion. That's orthodox, basic Christian teaching. But all throughout the remainder of scriptures, the constant imperative is to be being filled, present continuous in the Greek, with the Holy Spirit because we leak. You're a sieve. I'm a sieve. And as we walk with Jesus, he's filling us up little by little. But we are not yet what we shall be. One day we'll awaken in his image and likeness. And then we will know fully even as we're fully known. But until then we leak. So we need to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. You lack power? Ask God for the Holy Spirit. You lack joy? Ask God for the Holy Spirit. What is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? These are the fruits of the what? 
of the Spirit. Fill me, Lord. Help me, Jesus. Why is this so important? Because living life to the fullest is what this is all about. How do I know? This is my favorite point from the whole sermon. I'm trying to calm down. Like, just in case you're thinking, he's intense today. I'm trying. I'm working on it. Point number six. Jesus did not resurrect in order to retire. Somebody shout. He did not resurrect to retire. Jesus Christ, point number six, rose again to go somewhere. Where'd he go? Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ resurrected and returned to his rightful place at the Father's right hand, where like I tell you every week, he sat down to intercede for you. He did not resurrect in order to retire. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who I could read this like a black preacher, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake? We're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, say it with me in your heart, that neither life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Somebody shout, hallelujah, Lord. We bless your name, Lord. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? The answer, Mel Lastman says it to you every week. Nobody! And yeah, we just redeemed that awful advertisement. (laughs) Point number seven, I'm almost done, worship team. Yeah, you can join me. I'm on the last page. I'm on the last paragraph of the last page. Help me, Lord. Jesus resurrected to continue his victory lap. Hear me, church. He resurrected to continue his victory lap, ruling and reigning over angels, authorities, and powers in the words of verse 22. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which means because he has identified with you and now you can identify with him. Because the story about him is really true and you can therefore really build your life on it. Because Jesus is... Still so stoked about the implications of his story that he took a victory lap to preach about it because God is patient because salvation both in its outer signs and in its inner work depend completely on the resurrection because Jesus rose again to go somewhere back to his rightful place and to do something which was to rule and reign. 
or in other words, continue his victory lap, friends, you might as well just jump in the back seat. <laughs> 